All right, I want to continue on preaching this morning. I want to, quite, as quite often happens, um, when something starts, I can't ever get through it in one week, and it happened again. I want to kind of continue on what we talked about last week. And, um, however, this is going to be a real um, message of life and hope. Because I see some real significant differences here in two Old Testament um, people that I want to talk about today. And I think as we talk about them, we're going to see how God's judgment and grace is really given to us. So I want to, I'm going to continue on with that. Um, I'm going to read a lot again today because I want to make sure I cover it right and I want to make sure the Lord works in it. So today I want to talk about King David and King Saul. And I want to talk about the difference maker between those two men. After last week's message, speaking of judgment and grace, I felt God really talking to me about forgiveness of sin. And when we do fall in our Christian life, how we get through it. Maybe some have fallen very far and are really still struggling with that today. Maybe some are feeling like God really hasn't forgiven them. Maybe some are really struggling with, maybe I can't forgive myself. I want to talk about that today. This message is one of encouragement in that God has a plan for that. We have to abide in it and we have to do our part. This is a good news message. So hang with me here in this one. It might be kind of long, but I promise you it'll be good and you'll find it interesting. Last week we spoke about our tendency to use grace as a cover for everything, regardless of our choices in life. Where some judgment or discernment should have been applied so that we can make the right choices to recognize the sin and thus do what is required in God's sight to repent of it and to make it right. But often we take the easier and less painful way out and cover the indiscretion with God's grace. And we call it good. And I'm not so sure that that's the right thing to do. I'm not so sure that that's really in our best interest. And therefore I want to talk about that. The question I raised then and I still do today is this. Do I have the right to do that? Can I call on God's grace in every situation regardless of my or your continuing life choices? After praying and studying on this, I believe God has helped me with some, this very difficult question. And I believe the answer is yes. Yes, yes, yes. I believe God's grace is all-encompassing. As long as we agree with his conditions and that we are willing to abide under his leadership uncompromisingly. And we must do so with an honest and an upright heart of complete surrender, humility, and utter dependence on God. And I sense even as I say it, I still feel some tug in my heart and from others, some people saying that that's too conditional, Mike. That God's grace is free and unbounded and doesn't depend on me. Otherwise, it's all about me and my ability to save myself. And I'm not sure where this comes from, other than possibly a sense of false sense of humility. As there, as there is nothing a falling man can do to save himself, other than call out to God and at his grace to save him. And then when he does... When God does come through, and when, does, when God does save me or save you, 
What's wrong then with living an unconditional life of holiness in return, not to earn salvation, but in a sense of gratitude and love because I'm saved? And every day I have this sense of urgency to continue to sanctify or set myself apart from the world. Understand, holiness is not perfection. We can't live perfectly, but we can live a holy a set-apart life with a desire to serve God in our best ability and with all our heart. And I say this based on a study of two Old Testament leaders that began with a very similar call in our life by God, and yet they both sinned. But only one was redeemed and restored in God's sight and God's service. And I think they can be very good role models for us today. So I want to talk this morning about the life of King Saul in the life of King David. And I want to contrast their reactions to their sin that was found out in their lives to give us some direction today in how we should look and deal with the sin in our lives and in our past and in our continuing service to God. Both leaders were set in place by God to be kings over Israel. So we know that God's hand was at least at one time upon both of them. They both started off in very similar ways. For instance, they were both quite attractive. For Saul, 1 Samuel chapter 9, verse 2, Kish had a son named Saul who was better looking and more than a head taller than anyone else in Israel. For David, in 1 Samuel 16, verse 12, it said, So he sent and had David, him, brought in. He was ruddy with a fine appearance and handsome features. So they were both attractive men. Both had duties with their father's herds. Saul was sent to find his father's lost donkeys, where David was a shepherd over his father's sheep flocks. Both were handpicked by God to be king. In each case, the Lord revealed his choice through Samuel, a prophet, who anointed them, by God. For Saul, it went like this. 1 Samuel chapter 10, verse 1 says, Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on Saul's head and kissed him, saying, Has not the Lord anointed you leader over his inheritance? And David's anointing was in the presence of his fathers and his brothers. There is father, and we had one father, father and brothers. In 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 13, it says, Samuel poured the oil on David's head. While his brothers watched, at that moment the Spirit of God or the Spirit of the Lord took control of David and stayed with him from then on. What else? What other similarities did they have? Both were men of war. They each led armies to victory over the enemies of Israel. Both were politically astute. Both operated prophetically. And both sinned against themselves, God, and the people. And both of them had opportunity to be restored by God if they would respond in the fashion that God required of them. So what made the difference? What was the difference maker that makes us look at King David in a positive light and King Saul in a negative light? Could it be on how they reacted when a prophet of God brought their sins before them? Could this also be the difference maker in our lives when the Holy Spirit brings sin before us? 
This implies to me that today as Christians, we may start strong in our Christian walk and fall along the way in some sort of sin. We all have occasion to sin in our, in our lives of various sorts, and God is willing to restore us. But there are conditions that must be met. God's willingness to pour His grace, His grace on us is all depending on our attitudes and our character, just like it was for Saul and David. God's grace is free and is sufficient. But it must be properly applied and accepted if it's to be effective in our lives. And I say this because God is very clear about how he looks at the heart of people. Proverbs chapter 16 verse 5 said, says, The Lord detests all the proud of heart. But be sure of this. They will not go unpunished. God looks at my heart. He looks at your heart. If there's pride in your heart, understand it will not go unpunished. God is a God of promise. He promises grace and he promises judgment. So when we come to God with our sin, our heart becomes of utmost importance. God is looking for a broken, contrite spirit, one that is truly repentant and not one that is looking for a way around the situation according to our own ability to justify our actions. A person with a proud heart will never have the act of surrender that God is looking for Therefore, there may never be forgiveness for them. Understand, not everybody is going to go to heaven. I know that's not what we want to say in our society today. I know that we want to spin it so that, oh, it'll be okay. Everybody will eventually get there. They will not get there. King Saul and King David, even though they started out in a similar path, ended completely different. And by looking at their lives, we can see a path of God's grace for us, no matter what our sins are, if we follow David's patterns and not Saul's. So I want to emphasize this morning the difference in Saul and David, that when it came to them dealing with the sin they both committed and their individual reactions and accountability to it, that's the difference maker. That's what I want to talk about. Let's look first at the life of King Saul. As we already positioned Saul, he was the right man for the job as God originally picked. So what happened to Saul that gave him his downfall? Saul sinned two times that we are given account of, and both times Saul was given opportunity to repent. But the problem with Saul is that he never truly had a repentant heart. Therefore, there was no salvation for Saul. There could have been. But Saul continued to make bad choices. On the first occasion, Samuel, speaking as God's prophet, told Saul to go to Gilgal and wait for him to make sacrifices before he, before he goes to war against the Philistines. He told him it could take him up to seven days before he may get there. But wait, Saul, I'll get there. Just wait on me. I'll get there. God ever asked you to wait? Has God ever said, just wait on me? I'll get there. Saul went, and Samuel didn't come. The seventh day came, and still no Samuel. Saul's army was beginning to scatter, and Saul was starting to panic, thinking that his men were going to desert him, and he wouldn't be able to fight the enemy. 
So he made the decision on his own to take on the role of priest and offer the sacrifices. Now I say the seventh day came, but when, does the seventh, when is the seventh day over? It might have been 8 o'clock in the morning and Saul said, Hey, Samuel's not here, so I better take care of this on my own. Saul got, Samuel got there. Understand the Levites were the priests and they only had the God-given role to offer sacrifices as part of their priestly duties, of which Samuel was. He was a Levite, he was a priest. A king, as in King Saul, is not a priest and Saul didn't have the authority to do this, but yet he did. What this reminds me of is what we spoke about last week, about how we often don't have the authority to offer grace because we aren't the grace giver. Yet we justify in our own minds that God's plan of redemption and his word is just not keeping up with the times we live in. Therefore, we think we have the authority to take on the priestly role and decide for ourselves what's worthy of grace and what's not. Again, this morning I'm saying that we must, we must heed the word of God and abide by its commands, not our own fleshly desires. It's better that we live according to God's standards than to have to decide where we compromise and then cover it with man-made grace. It doesn't work that way. Like Samuel is delayed in arriving to meet Saul, God may be delayed in his judgment and his grace, but rest assured, he's never late. Let's continue with Saul's actions. Samuel arrived just as Saul was finished offering the sacrifices. And let's pick up their discussion Again, in 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 13, verses 8 through 14. He waited seven days, the time set by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and Saul's men began to scatter. So he said, bring me the burnt offering and the fellowship offerings. And Saul offered up the burnt offering. Just as he finished making the offering, Samuel arrived, and Saul went out to greet him. What have you done? asked Samuel. Saul replied, when I saw that the men were scattering and that you did not come at the set time and that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash, I thought, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I have not sought the Lord's favor. So I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering. You acted foolishly, Samuel said. You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. But now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him leader of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. What was Saul's reaction to Samuel? It was one of justification of what he had done, not one of true repentance. This is the first of two major errors in Saul's life that if handled wisely his outcome would have been different. The second major sin in Saul's life is described in 1 Samuel chapter 15. Here Saul is commanded to completely destroy the Amalekites. Everything, even the animals, nothing was supposed to live. Now I know this sounds harsh, but this is what God commanded of Saul. But what did Saul do? He spared King Agag and all the choice animals he blatantly disobeyed God's clear instruction to him. This is a major travesty in Saul's life. This is proving to God that Saul is not a trustworthy king, and thus, let's hear how Saul reacts to this. 
This is the command that God, that God gave Saul. 1 Samuel chapter 15, verses 1 through 3. Samuel said to Saul, I am the Lord, I am the one the Lord sent to anoint you king over his people Israel. So listen now to the message from the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I will punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they waylaid them as they came up from Egypt. Now go, attack the Amalekites and totally destroy everything that belongs to them. Do not spare them. Put to death men and women, children and infants, cattle and sheep, camels and donkeys. In other words, wipe them off the face of the earth. Pretty direct, pretty severe command, right? This message is clear. Nothing is to be spared. Even though we may not agree sometimes with God's word, if he says it, we must do it. Who are we to change it to make it fit what we think it should say? The word comes to us many times very direct, but we change it. We're not at all different than Saul in many ways. Let's continue. So Saul went to war. He gathered his men and off they went. Let's pick it up after it's all done and see what happens. 1 Samuel chapter 15, verses 7 through 9. Then Saul attacked the Amalekites all the way from Havilah to Shur to the east of Egypt. He took Agog, king of the Amalekites, alive. He was supposed to destroy him. He took him alive, and all his people he totally destroyed with the sword. So he killed the people, saved the king. But Saul and the army spared Agag and the best of the sheep and the cattle, the fat calves and the lambs, everything that was good. These they were unwilling to destroy completely, but everything that was despised and weak they totally destroyed. Now, isn't that just like man? We want to keep what's good, but we're no problem destroying the bad. But if I think there's some value in it, I'm, not, I'm going to disregard God. And Saul, as we're going to find out, thought he had good reason to. But is this what God asked him to do? Did King Saul do as God asked? 1 Samuel 15, let's continue to read, starting at verse 10. Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel. I am grieved that I have made Saul king because he has turned away from me and has not carried out my instructions. Samuel was troubled and he cried out to the Lord all that night. Early in the morning, Samuel got up and went to meet Saul. But he was told Saul has gone down to Carmel. There he has set up a monument in his own honor and has turned and gone down to Gilgal. <laughs> Not only did Saul not do as God commanded him, now he has the audacity to set up a monument to his own achievements and brag about it. How quickly Saul lost a fear of God and replaced that with a sense of personal accomplishment. Does that sound familiar in anything in your life? Does it sound familiar in anything in my life? Do we have the fear of God in our lives? Verse 13, when Samuel reached him, Saul said, The Lord bless you. I have carried out the Lord's instructions. 
Samuel's down to him. Saul, in his disobedience, has the audacity to say, Saul, good to see you, man. The Lord bless you. I have carried out the Lord's instructions. Wow. Here's the problem with Saul. He didn't see what he did as wrong. In his own mind, he justified his decision over God's direct command, and he is unable or unwilling to see that he didn't do as he was commanded. Man, this is hitting close to home, isn't it? Samuel calls him out. Samuel said in verse 14, What then is this bleeding of sheep in my ears? What is this lowing of cattle that I hear? Saul answered, the soldiers brought them from the Amalekites. They spared the best of the sheep and cattle to the sacrifice to the Lord your God, but we totally destroyed the rest. How quickly Samuel or Saul is to say, the soldiers did it. <laughs> they did the bad stuff, but I destroyed them. Still, Saul doesn't see it. Even when Samuel brings up his indiscretion, Saul has a justification for it. He is saying his soldiers did it. They spared the best sheep and the cattle. And we did so so that we can sacrifice them to the Lord. We even did it so we could bring them as a sacrifice. Because we know that God wants a sacrifice. Can you see the lies and the deceit in this type of reaction? Verse 16. Stop, Samuel said to Saul, let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. Tell me, Saul replied. Samuel said, although you were once small in your own eyes, did you not become the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and he sent you on a mission saying, go and completely destroy those wicked people, the Amalekites. Make war on them until you have wiped them out. Why did you not obey the Lord? Why did you pounce on the plunder and do evil in the eyes of the Lord? Once again, Samuel is giving Saul an opportunity to make a true confession of his wrong and thus possibly spare the coming judgment. God always does that. He always gives you the opportunity to repent. He did it to Saul multiple times. Let's read in verse 20. But I did obey the Lord, Saul said. I went on the mission, and the Lord assigned me. I completely destroyed the Amalekites and brought back, brought back Agog, their king. The soldiers took sheep and cattle from the plunder. The best of God was devoted, the best what was devoted to God in order to sacrifice them to the Lord, your God, at Gilgal. But that's not what God told him to do. He said to destroy everything. We are seeing the major flaw in Saul's character beginning to come out. And that is he isn't obedient. He thinks that he has a better plan than God's word for him. We see him taking credit for the killing that was done. And for that, he thinks he should be commended. And then he says the soldiers took the plunder. He doesn't say to them that he told them to take the plunder. He said he blames it on the soldiers. He blames somebody else. Do you see yourself in any of this? How much are we tempted to be just like Saul when it comes to obeying the word of God? We are quick to take credit for the small areas of obedience and make that sound like it was a huge sacrifice for us. But in the areas that we fail in, we are somehow finding others to blame for why we couldn't be obedient in those areas. 
Let's continue. But Samuel replied, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the voice of the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination or witchcraft, and arrogance like the evil of idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. Okay, God and Samuel have finally had enough. Saul's justification tactics and his unrepentant attitude are, are just too much. God can't handle it anymore. He said, I'm done with it. It's over. It's over, Saul. Finally, Saul said in verse 24, Then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. I violated the Lord's command and your instructions. I was afraid of the people, so I gave in to them. Now I beg you, forgive my sin and come back with me so that I may worship the Lord. Finally, Saul's catching on. He's trying to make it right. He's trying to say, I'm sorry. But as we look at Saul's confession, see if you can sense a true repentance and a real sorrow for what he did, or if we see him more sorry that he got caught. Is there a difference between saying, I'm sorry that I committed this travesty, or I'm sorry that I got caught? Is there a difference? Just because somebody says, I'm sorry, do you know what they're sorry for? Big difference. Saul was the king. He had all the authority to do, to do anything he wanted to do. Do you think he really was afraid of the people? Or do you think it just became an excuse because it sounded better than just saying, I didn't want to do that. So he made an excuse. What about our lives? Do we also justify ourselves with petty little excuses? We all know that in the end, we do what we want to do. No matter how much time it takes, no matter how much effort it takes, in so many cases, no matter how much money it takes, I'll justify it. What I want to do, I'll do. So when the things of God come along that we may not want to do, we have all kinds of petty little excuses that we can blame them on. God help us. That's pretty shallow thinking. But Samuel said to him in verse 26, I will not go back with you. You have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you as king over Israel. As Samuel turned to leave, Saul caught hold of the hem of his robe, and, he, and it tore. Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to one of your neighbors, to one better than you. He who is the glory of Israel does not lie or change his mind, for he is not a man that should change his mind. Saul replied, I have sinned, but please honor me before the elders of my people and before Israel. Come back with me so that I may worship the Lord your God. It's really feeling the kingdom slipping away now at this time because he so desperately is trying to figure out how he's going to get out of this mess. He's caught. So he admits that he sinned. But I want to point out a couple things here in this verse. I want to look at verse 30. I want to point out two things. First of all, first of all he says, I have sinned. But what is the word following the word sinned? But. What does but mean to you? Most of the time when I hear the word but, I can pretty much disregard what happened before it. I have sinned, but. I'm really glad you suggested that I do that, but. I would really like to work for God, but. I would really like to be a Sunday school teacher, but. I would really like to volunteer my time. I'd really like to give more in the offering, but. See, as soon as we use the word but, you might as well disregard what happened or what was said previous to that. And that's exactly what Saul was doing. 
He said, I have sinned, but please honor me before the elders of my people. Come back with me so that I may worship the Lord, your God. That's the other thing I want to point out. He wasn't that I want to worship the Lord, my God. He has slipped so far away that he couldn't even call God his God. I want to worship your God. Also, look at who he was wanting to be honored in front of. Please honor me before the elders of my people and before Israel. He didn't say, honor me before God. He didn't say anything about God. He wants to be honored in front of people. Where do you want to be honored in front of? Who do I want to be honored in front of? Is God really who I want to be honored in front of? Or am I living my life for people? Who are you living your life for? The end for Saul was not good. He never saw a reconciliation with God, no matter what the politically correct would say today, that eventually we all will be saved and that God will eventually forgive everyone. 35, verse 35 says, Until the day Samuel died, he did not go see Saul again, though Samuel mourned for him, and the Lord was grieved that he had made Saul king over Israel. Saul sealed his fate because of the attitude that he had. All right, let's look at King David. And let's see the difference in what, what makes a man a man after God's own heart. Samuel was also involved with choosing David as Saul's successor. We already talked about David's qualifications. So both Paul, or both Saul and David were chosen by God, handpicked to be kings, and both sinned once in office. The difference was David remained a man after God's own heart by the way he reacted to his own indiscretions, where Saul was a miserable failure. Let's skip ahead a number of years to when David was much older. He had been king for many years and had proven himself to be a good king and a good man. But even in his maturing years and after serving God and the people in good standing, he was still susceptible to a fall. We all know the story of David and Bathsheba. And we can learn some very interesting and I think invaluable lessons here when it comes to repentance and finding God's true grace in the midst of open sin. This is a story of hope for all of us, even in our darkest hour. But we have to be obedient if we are going to have the same outcome as David had versus the outcome of Saul. Let's read the account, 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1 through 5. In the spring, at the time when kings go to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israeli, Israeli, Israelite army. They destroyed the, Am the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. Here at the very heart, here's the very root of David's problems. We find a king who wasn't where he belonged. If David had been out in the battlefield where the king was supposed to be, instead of hanging around the palace, ultimately looking at naked women, this whole incident would never have happened. Some have, some have suggested that David may have been battling with depression or had been going through some type of a midlife crisis. In either event, he wasn't where he belonged, and which is often the first step of a downhill slide. What are we doing with our time? Are we where we are supposed to belong? Are you doing the things with your time that you're supposed to be doing with your time? 
Even if you're going through some struggles, some maybe a midlife depression, maybe you have some problems in your life, are you still where you're supposed to be? Where are you spending your time on the Internet? Where are you spending time re watching movies, reading books? Are you filling your mind with garbage? Or are you, are, you, are you in the Word of God? Are you praying? Are you spending time where you're supposed to be spending your time? Don't place yourself in obvious areas of temptation. Be careful of what you do with your time. Let's read, continue reading verse 2. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a beautiful woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. And David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, isn't this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah, the Hittite? Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him and he slept with her. She had purified herself from her uncleanness. Then she went back home. David didn't set out to commit an insidious sin. People seldom do. At first inquiry, he didn't even know the woman's identity or her marital status. In that, in that time of history, had she been unmarried, he would have had been quite proper in pursuing her as a wife. But by the time he learned that she was married, David had already let lust set its hooks in his heart. And his lustful desire outweighed his good sense and his integrity. Unbridled lust can do that to a person, even you, even me, if we allow it to smolder long enough. By this point, it's apparent that David's intentions had shifted from an interest in taking Bathsheba as a wife just to, a plain, just to plainly taking Bathsheba. David had no plans on a long-term affair, just a one-night sexual romp with a good-looking woman. That's all he wanted. As usual, however, sin has consequences. Verse 5 the woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I'm pregnant. David sinned, and it was a bad one. And being like us, the first thing he thought to do was cover it up. So one bad action led to another, and the sin got worse and got worse. David is no prince here. David is falling badly. Verse 6, so David sent word, this word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab, Joab sent him to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was, how the soldiers were, were, and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace, and a gift from the king was sent after him. But Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all his master's servants and did not go down to his house. Now remember, Uriah is Bathsheba's husband. Okay, just make sure you know who that is. That's Bathsheba's husband. When David was told that Uriah did not go home, he asked him, Haven't you just come from a distance? Why didn't you go home? Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents, and my master Joab and my lord's men are camped in the open fields. How can I go to my house to eat and drink and lie with my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. Then David said to him, Stay here one more day, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah stayed, remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. At David's invitation, he ate and drank with him, and David made him drunk. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among his master's servants. He did not go home. David did everything he could 
to get Uriah to go home and hopefully sleep with his wife so that everyone would think that it was Uriah's baby. It was a cover-up. This is Watergate. This is, you name it. This is whatever Washington was doing. This was better. And when the plot didn't happen that way, it only thickened. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it, he wrote, Put Uriah in the front line where the fighting is fiercest. Then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. So while Joab and the city were, and, uh, so while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. When the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men of David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. Verse 26. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. After the time was mourning was over, David had brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. I go into this kind of detail so we can see that David's sin was bad. I mean, it was really bad. Probably worse than any of ours in our lives. Has anybody murdered anybody here? Has anybody gone to this level of deceit to cover up a sin? David was a bad man. David thought the whole incident was covered up. The only thing, the only living person who knew the entire truth and could testify against him was Bathsheba. And her silence was probably motivated by fear for her own life. All of his bases were covered, or so he thought. He only looked, overlooked one small detail. You can't hide your heart from God. Neither can I. And neither can you. Then comes the difference between David and Saul. And it's the same difference maker for us today. See, it's not the sin that matters or the magnitude of the sin because Jesus has already taken care of that. It's our attitude. It's our unjustifiable, uncompromisable acceptance of Jesus as the conqueror, the grace giver that allows the covering and the forgiving power to work on our behalf. Let's read about David's conviction and his response that makes the difference. 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses, beginning at verse 1. The Lord sent Nathan to David. Nathan's the prophet. When he came to him, he said, There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it, and, he, and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arm. It sounds like my dog. <laughs> Chris's dog. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die. He must pay for, what, pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a, such a thing and had no pity then Nathan said to David, you are the man. 
This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. Do you see how Nathan is starting off with David the way that Samuel is starting off with Saul? He said, I anointed you king over Israel. I put you in place. Verse 8. I gave your master's house to you. And your master's wives into your arms. I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah, the Hittite, to be your own. This is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, I am going to bring calamity upon you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to the one who is close to you, and he will lie with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. Here's the difference. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. The last six words of this passage are the most important we can read. I have sinned against the the Lord. What's missing? There's no but. There's no justification. David says, I sinned. It's David's immediate response that is the difference between him and Saul. By David recognizing that he sinned without any excuse, without any justification, without any cover-up, or anything to deny what he did, is what Jesus, the grace giver, is looking for in David and in us. The value of God's word is that it never changes in its meaning and in its relevance. The power of God's word is just as powerful today as it was the day it was first written. Today's political structure our society influences, our increased knowledge and the technology does nothing to weaken the power and the relevance of God's word. It is God's word and it always will be God's word. In fact, God tells us he will destroy the wisdom of the wise. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 through 21, it says, The message about the cross doesn't make any sense to lost people, but for those of us who are being saved, it is God's power at work As God says in the scriptures, I will destroy the wisdom of all who claim to be wise. I will confuse those who think they know so much. What happened to those wise people? What happened to those experts in the scriptures? What happened to the ones who think they have all the answers? Didn't God show that the wisdom of this world is foolish? God was wise and decided not to let the people of this world use their wisdom to learn about him. Instead, God chose to save only those who believe the foolish message we preach. It's the one that recognizes the uncompromised truth of God's word and the error of his way that God saves. And it's only those. Let's continue with David's story. 2 Samuel chapter 12, beginning at verse 13. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. See how quick, see how quick the Lord comes to forgive the sin. Because there was no but, because there was no justification. He said, I have sinned. And Nathan says, the Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. 
but there are still consequences. But because by doing this you have made the enemies of the Lord show utter contempt, the son born to you will die. After Nathan had gone home, the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife had born David, or Bathsheba, and he became ill. The baby became ill. David pleaded with God for the child. He fasted and went into his house and spent the nights lying on the ground. The elders of his household stood beside him to get him up from the ground, but he refused, and he would not eat any food with them. On the seventh day, the child died. David's servants were afraid to tell him that the child was dead, for they thought while the child was still living, we spoke to David, but he would not listen to us. How can we tell him the child is dead? He may do something desperate. David noticed that his servants were whispering among themselves, and he realized the child was dead. Is the child dead, he asked. Yes, they replied, he is dead. Then David got up from the ground. After he had washed, put on lotions, and changed his clothes, he went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. Then he went into his own house, and at his request, they served him food, and he ate. His servants asked him, Why are you acting this way? While the child was alive, you fasted and wept, but now the child is dead, you get up and eat. He answered, While the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. I thought, Who knows? Maybe the Lord may be gracious to me and let the child live. But now that he is dead, why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I will go to him but he will not return to me. David had a complete, immediate change of heart, and he immediately understood that he stood completely under the grace of God. He didn't argue. He didn't reason. He didn't justify his actions. He didn't try to convince God that he had any good reason to do what he did. He went to work trying to do everything he could to restore his relationship with his God and with the hope that maybe God would even relent in the consequences of his sin. What we need to learn from this is this. God will forgive if we follow the model that David laid out for us. God will forgive. Rather than trying to justify our actions, plead God's forgiveness. God is not interested in your justification. He is not interested in what you think. He's only interested in, will you surrender yourself to me? Will you plead for my forgiveness? Will you accept your sin as it is a sin, and will you plead for my forgiveness? Come to him in holy abandon, seeking his mercy and grace without reservation and compromise. As David prayed, he asked for mercy on his son, but God still allowed him to die. See, David understood God's perfect judgment. He prayed and fasted until the final decision was made. And when it was, David wasn't angry at God. Rather, he was a long-term thinker, and he recognized that he will see his son in eternity. 2 Samuel 12:23. But now that he's dead, why should I go without eating? I can't bring him back. Someday I will join him in death. But he can't return to me. See, David understood that he had to forego some immediate satisfaction of being with his son in order to enjoy eternity, that's what consequences are. God forgives our sin, but we still have consequences to bear. Sin has consequences, understand that, but that doesn't change God's grace. It may change our immediate circumstances, but it doesn't change God's grace. Are we willing to accept the same in our lives? God's grace is sufficient to save us. But are we willing to let him according to his laws and conditions? 
Or are we too short-term minded, thinking that we must have it all now and still want it then? I have to accept the consequences of my sin if I'm going to have eternity with Jesus. I'm never going to change the consequences. What's going to change, though, is my eternal home, my eternal destiny. If I will accept the consequences and do as David did and go back to the house and worship God, worship him in his perfect judgment, in the perfect hard consequences of life, but then move on. Ask for his forgiveness. Don't justify myself. Don't justify my behavior. But take his consequences as what they are. Then move on and worship God with a pure heart. Again, I ask the question, who is the grace giver? Who is the grace giver? Me or God? The conclusion of this message today is this. God will honor his word and forgive us of all our unrighteousness if, in big, bold letters, if we will humble ourselves and come to him with complete submission and uncompromised truth. Quit playing the games. Quit justifying my behavior. Quit saying it's going to be okay. If it's not okay, it's not okay. Come before God with complete humility, complete humbleness of heart, and say, I'm sorry I committed that sin. I'm sorry. The best news of all of this is that the story does not end with the consequences of sin. Where there is sin, there are consequences, but where there is grace, there is restoration and healing. Jackie, if you would come. I want to read Psalm 51. Psalm 51 is David's heart cry. This is David's prayer of forgiveness. And as I read this this morning, this is the difference maker. This is the difference maker. So as we read Psalms 51, you can either read along with me or you can close your eyes. And what I want to challenge you with in your heart today, is this what your heart is crying out? Is this ring true to me? Am I hearing this in my heart? Is this sounding like me? If it is, then God has restored you. If it is, then there's healing for you. There's forgiveness for you. Psalm 51. You are kind, God. I'm reading this in the contemporary English version. You are kind, God. Please have pity on me. You are always merciful. Please wipe away my sins. Wash me clean from all of my sin and guilt. I know about my sins and I cannot forget my terrible guilt. You are really the one I have sinned against. I have disobeyed you and have, and have done wrong. So it is right and fair for you to correct and punish me. I have sinned and done wrong since the day I was born. But you want complete honesty. So teach me true wisdom. Wash me with hyssop until I am clean and whiter than snow. Let me be happy and joyful. You crushed my bones, now let them celebrate. Turn your eyes from my sin and cover my guilt. Create pure thoughts in me and make me faithful again. Don't chase me away from you or take your Holy Spirit away from me. 
Make me as happy as you did when you saved me. Make me want to obey. I will teach sinners your law, and they will return to you. And keep me from any deadly sin. Only you can save me. Then I will shout and sing about your power to save. Help me to speak, and I will praise you, Lord. Offerings and sacrifices are not what you want. The way to please you is to feel sorrow deep in my heart, deep in our hearts. This is the kind of sacrifice you won't refuse. Be willing, Lord, to help the city of Zion and to rebuild its walls. Then you will be pleased with the proper sacrifices, and we will offer bulls on your altar once again. The NIV says in verse 16 and 17, You do not delight in sacrifices, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. Oh God, you will not displease. Is that your heart this morning? This is the heart of a man or a woman that is pleading for true repentance. Does it sound like you? This is the message of hope. Because if that's what your heart says, if that's what your heart is crying out, no matter what you did in the past, no matter what it was, it wasn't as bad as David The Bible says David is a man after God's own heart because David chased God's own heart. So today, you apply the forgiveness of God to yourself. You forgive yourself. And then you chase after God. Uncompromised from today forward, do not go back to that old man do not go back to that old way of thinking. Do not go back to that sin. It has no boundary over you anymore. It has no claim on your life anymore because you came to him without justification. Amen. Close your eyes with me, if you will. Let's just pray for a minute. Dear Father, we thank you for being the difference maker in our lives. Lord, we do not want to be Saul. We do not want to be King Saul. We do not want to have that stubborn heart, that justifiable heart, that, that heart that always brings excuses, the heart that always brings, oh, it was somebody else's fault. Oh, he made me do it. She made me do it. My job was too bad. I was in a depression mode. I don't care what it was. That's not the way to your heart. The only way to your heart is, Father, I have sinned. Please forgive me. Please forgive me. And Lord, just as quickly as you took away David's sin, you're taking away ours right now. Lord, now I pray that for those that have sin and consequences, Lord, I pray that you would allow us to bear under the consequences. Lord, they're not going to go away. You're not going to take them away because you can't, because you won't. But Lord, help us, give us the strength that we would live with our consequences that we would have your divine and utter strength and your understanding and your compassion and your mercy and your grace that we can bear with the consequences that come within our heart and our lives. And for those that haven't sinned that bad this morning, understand, young people, you don't have to go down that path. You make wise choices now in your youth 
so you don't have to go down the path of Saul or David. Live your holy life. Live a righteous life. Live a life set apart. And you will never have to bear that. You don't have to have consequences of sin in your life. You don't have to. Father, I just thank you for this day. I want to just open up the altars again this morning. If you want to pray, you're welcome to come and pray. I want to just pray that a prayer of dismissal. You're welcome to come pray. If you want to just seek God and, and just come in and thank Him for the mercy, thank Him for His grace, thank Him for the sacrifice that He's given on our behalf, come with a repentant heart and He will set you right. For those that are struggling with sin, if you haven't accepted Jesus in your life today, if you want to, this is a day of salvation. If you want to, I would love to pray with you and for you. If you want to come up and if you want to say, Mike, I need prayer because I don't want to fall down that path. I don't want to go down that path. I need strength. Come, I'll pray for you. Others will pray for you. We'll ask God's blessing and His strength over you and we'll ask for forgiveness of your sin and you will be set on a path today of holiness and of righteousness. Father, now we come before you in Jesus' name. Oh, Holy Spirit, thank you for this message. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your love and your grace. Thank you for your grace. Thank you, Jesus, for your grace. Lord, help us not to apply it ourselves. Help us to rely on you as our grace giver. Lord, now I pray for every one of us in this room today. I pray that we all have different situations and circumstances. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would work independently, individually with each person today. Lord, go to every heart, go to every situation, and you bring the healing, you bring the restoration, you bring the strength. And release us today to live in victory. Release us to live in joy. Release us to live in right standing with you and that we would be holy and set apart and sanctified and that you would be pleased and that you would not say about us, I am sorry that I made them king. I'm sorry I I made Saul king. That you would not say that. You would say, come, come, my beloved. Welcome home. I'm so proud. I'm so pleased with you. That's what you're saying and we accept that in Jesus' name. Go with us today. Go with us, Holy Spirit. Now do your work as you need to in Jesus' name. Amen.